Lord's Day. Thank you because you made it and you set it apart, called it good, told us to rest in it, to be restored, to be renewed, and to worship you. We thank you that we can begin our week this way with a fresh start, to remember who we are and why we're here, to remember who you are and what you've done for us. And today, as we think about the world we live in, help us, Lord, to be both serious and joyful, to uh, think hard and deep about uh, not only what we think and believe, but to understand the world that we live in so that we might know what to do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, I want to acknowledge um, Nancy Piercy's book, Love Thy Body. I know some of you have purchased that and are reading it, and it would be a great way to support what we're doing here. Um, and these lessons that I'm doing are primarily an edited, redacted, paraphrased, and annotated by me um, version of this book. And so as I read the book a couple of times, I found it very powerful, very helpful. And so um, as a means of sharing that and expanding that impact, I'm using that to instruct you. So let, let's just review very briefly where we are. Last week was our introductory lesson on this. Uh, and we pointed out, as we read uh, from uh, Joshua 24, uh, you know that passage where the children of Israel are, have been tempted to uh, go after other gods, and, and so the declaration is made to them, make a choice. If you want to serve them, go serve them. But the gods on the other side of the river, go for it. That's who you like. That's who you want to follow. That's who you want to be like. You like those lifestyles. You like those outcomes. Go for it. But Joshua says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And of course the people say, no, no, we, we want to serve Jehovah too. And so they make that commitment. And Joshua warns them, now don't just say that. You've got to mean that. It's got to be serious. And so I'm saying the same thing as we begin this. We face life and death issues all the time. They're all around us, just like they did. There are false gods all around us, all the time. And so each of us, indeed every man, woman, man and woman, are presented with some very stark choices uh, between following Jesus Christ or some other god. No one, Jesus said, can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. And so what we want to learn to do is to act instead of react. So often we're in our culture and things are coming at us left and right all the time and we're reacting to them. We haven't thought about them. It's, we're responding in the moment, whereas if we've thought about them, if we've gone to God's Word and we've thought through these issues, as they come we know what to do with them. We know how to think about them. So that's what we're trying to do also with these lessons. One of the things we asked was, who or what is your ultimate authority? Everybody has one. For most people, frankly, it's themselves. It's really the same problem Adam and Eve had. They want to be God, and most individuals want to be God. I want to do what I want to do, and I want to do it now, and to hell with the rest of you. Get out of my way. I'm the boss. I'm in charge. And we see in Scripture, sometimes God says, okay, go for it. You, you want to be in charge? You want to run the show? You want to make the choices? You want to leave me out of it? Go for it. 
Let's see how that turns out. We don't have to look very far to see the train wrecks, do we? What are your foundational presuppositions? What are the fundamental things you believe about yourself, about this world, how it got here, where it's going, what its purpose is? The first three chapters of Genesis, we pointed out, deal with most of the current major social issues, things like evolution and ethics, sexuality, marriage, and life. Many people who identify themselves as religious or even Christian are being co-opted by the secular worldview, often without ever realizing it because they don't think about it. They just muddle through. Um, You know, so we have this notion that's very prevalent. Well, that might be true for you, but it's not true for me. Well, again, that's under a view that says everybody decides for themselves what's right and what's wrong. There is no overarching ethic, no universal authority that expands over you and me, in fact, over everyone. That is the non-Christian view. Theologian Francis Schaeffer illustrated the division using the metaphor of a two-story building. And if we can have slide one, we're going to just, again, we're reviewing what we looked at last week. And he talks about this two-story view, and the top story was theology and morality, which is just private, it is subjective, and it is relativistic. Again, what's true for you might not be true for me. It's relative, uh, depending on your circumstances versus mine. Uh, And then the lower story says the world is, the other part of the world is just the scientific world. It's public. It's objective, and it's valid for everyone. The law of gravity is an example. Uh, We can test that. We can uh, prove that. We can, everybody has to bow to that authority. That one's concrete, and the other one is more uh, more vague and uh, not possible to nail down. Now, the second slide, uh, the academic world used a similar dichotomy or dualism. And it talks about values and versus facts, which is really the same division. Values are private, subjective, and relativistic. Facts, public, objective, valid for everyone. So let's not argue about the facts, but what they've left out there, and we won't get into this now, is every fact has to be interpreted. And what do we use to interpret those facts? Your values. So it's impossible to just live in a world of facts because every fact demands an interpretation. Some have to look at it and say, what does it mean? Where did it come from? What was its origin? Where is it? Does it have a purpose? Is this real even? How do we know? Well, these things, when we try to separate these things, we're going to see over and over that's where the problem comes in. And then the sl- third slide, we pointed out that modernists claim that the lower story is the primary or sole reality, that is, facts and science. So with the scientific revolution, this idea that if we, you know, everything, everything in science is the thing, science is what we can rely on. It's our ultimate authority. What's the problem? Does science ever change? Does it ever change its mind? Does it ever come out and make pronouncements about what's absolutely true only to reverse itself? Because science, scientists are what? Human beings that are finite, limited. They don't know very much. They act like, they act like they know a lot. If you put on a white lab coat and say it real profoundly with big words, that makes it sound very powerful and authoritative. But again, it's shifting sand. And then the postmodernists came, came 
uh, claim is that the upper story is is primary, that even the facts and the science are merely mental constructs, which means we just make it up as we go, or we get to interpret it however we want to, or prefer, or whatever we're convinced of. And so this modernism and postmodernism are in this conflict as to which is primary. Basically what happened is in in modernism, it basically was going to be this new age, uh, kind of a version of postmillennialism, that the scientific world was going to bring in this glorious um, revolution. And so you had it in education, sociology, psychology, uh, and really it all started with Darwin. You see, if if evolution is true and we're all making progress, then we can take control of that process, the evolutionary process, and we can speed things up. We can manipulate. We can get our desired results. So we can eliminate war and disease and crime and all of that. In fact, all those predictions were made. But what happened, two two world wars helped accelerate this. Uh, Disillusionment in modernism quickly set in. Wait a minute, where's where's the utopia? Where are the promised uh, blessings that we were supposed to all feel and see? And so in that disillusionment, postmodernism rises up and says, you know what, there are no universals. It's really all, each one of, every man for himself, so to speak, and you can't really know anything for sure. Now the key to understanding all the controversial issues of our day then is the concept uh, of the human being, that the human being has likewise been fragmented into an upper and lower story. Secular thought today assumes the body-person split, and we'll look at that more in a moment, with the body defined as the fact realm uh, by empirical science, that's the lower story, and the person defined in the values realm as the basis for rights, the upper story. Anybody ever seen one of these? What is that? What? It's a wrench, crescent wrench, an adjustable wrench. How do you know that? Can you look at it and tell? You can, can't you? Was it designed to do something? What? And loosen tight things, right? Tighten loose things and loosen tight things. Okay, that, that's my next point is, what if I decide to use it as a hammer? Anybody ever done that? That's right. Actually, I think this one got used as a hammer. It won't open and close anymore. So what happens is, all right, so the first thing I want to point out is, my illustration is, you can look at that and tell what it is. How? By its design. It was designed to be a wrench, to loosen tight things and tighten loose things, and designed to be an adjustable wrench so you can open it and close it for different sizes. It has a handle, a head. It's designed. And you recognize that. Everybody recognizes that, right? Anybody want to debate that? And then somebody comes along and says, yeah, but I can't find my hammer and I need to get this nail in, so hey, I'm going to use this for something it wasn't designed for. And then when I do, what happens to this? It gets damaged. It may get ruined. It may be destroyed. I may just have to throw this away because I used it for something it wasn't designed for. 
When I googled the term man and the term woman, and I looked under images, you know what? I got pictures of men for one, and I got pictures of women for the other, and I know Google will correct this error very soon. Genesis 5, 1 and 2 gives us the Christian worldview. This is the book of the genealogy of Adam. In the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them and called them mankind in the day they were created. That's our worldview. That's our basic presupposition. God made mankind, human beings, if you will, and he made them, he differentiated them between male and female. And they were created. They didn't evolve. They aren't just matter in motion. They had a design. They had a purpose. We are affected every day by the hotly contested issues of life and sexuality. For most of us, we'd rather not have to think about these things too much. But then we have children and teenagers, and we very quickly come to see that these subjects are not only vital, they are in fact life and death issues. People die every day over getting these issues wrong. And I don't mean a few. Whether it's abortion and euthanasia or disease or destroyed families and marriages Societies, entire societies, are destroyed by getting the answers to these questions wrong. Certainly, many individuals, and it's interesting, as we, as we run into individuals who have wrecked their own lives frequently, or at least created some damage, they've tried to use the wrench for a hammer, and there's damage, and then when they hear of a biblical worldview, they bow up. It's like, what? That's ridiculous. They can't tell you what to do. God can't tell you what to do. You're in charge. You say, yeah, well, how's it turning out for you? Well, that doesn't matter. Let's not pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. And so it becomes necessary for us to look at the various worldviews that are driving these contentions. We've seen that the worldview which supports secular uh, morality is an arbitrary and a profoundly fragmenting dualism that separates the human body, the biology, from the person. We want these in totally separate realms. Understanding this two-story division enables us to see its dehumanizing fruit in areas, again, such as abortion or assisted suicide, homosexuality, transgenderism, and the sexual hookup culture. We want to begin then with an overview of some of the key issues and then follow this up in the weeks to come with more detailed uh, answers to objections. And it will become clear that in stark contrast to the biblical ethic, uh, which affirm, a biblical ethic which affirms the full-orbed, holistic view of the person, body and soul, that supports human dignity. Nancy Piercy offers this example of the body-person dichotomy through this, through this example. 
She says, a few years ago, an article appeared by a British broadcaster named Miranda Sawyer, who described herself as a liberal feminist. In the article, she said she had always been firmly pro-choice or pro-abortion until she became pregnant with her own baby. Now, reality has a tendency to get our attention. Then she began to struggle. Quote, I was calling the life inside me a baby because I wanted it, yet if I hadn't, I would think of it as just a group of cells that it was okay to kill. That seemed irrational to me, maybe even immoral. Babies in the womb don't qualify as human only if someone wants them. And so now she's needing some kind of new justification. She needs a a new argument to be able to think about this and to not have to give up her old view. Because it's a fundamental presupposition. Pro-choice is a, I'm, you know, people are fundamentally committed to that idea. And some of you heard me use this where someone's, let's say I was committed to the idea, fundamentally, that all dogs are brown. What happens then if you bring in a non-brown dog before me? What are my choices? I can say it's not a dog. Why? It's not brown. All dogs are brown. I can interpret the facts in a way that supports my basic fundamental. That's where she is. All of a sudden, she's got a baby in her, and she realizes, now, wait a minute, if this is a baby, I've got a problem because it's in conflict with what I fundamentally believe about choice. Or I could give up my belief, right? Or adopt it, adapt it and say, well, all dogs are brown except one. And for the time being, maybe that's my, my first step away from my original assumption, but it's a big one. So Sawyer had run up against the wall of reality, and reality did not fit her ideology. So she began researching the subject and even produced a documentary. Boy, that'll, that'll, that's kind of the answer in our day. Finally, she reached her conclusion. Quote, in the end, I have to agree that life begins at conception. So yes, abortion is ending that life. Then she added, but perhaps the fact of life isn't what's important. It's whether that life has grown enough to start becoming a person. What has happened here is the concept, what is ha- what's happened here to the concept of the human being, it has been torn in two. If a baby is a human life from conception, but not a person until, until some later time, then clearly these are two totally different things, being human and being a person. This is a radically fragmented, fractured, dualistic view of human beings. Now, you've got to understand this if you're going to understand what the argument is in our culture, how it's justified. For most people, we ordinarily use the phrase human being to mean the same thing as a person. However, the two terms were ripped apart by the Supreme Court in 1973, and that's why 
legal rulings have real impact on our culture and how we think. In Roe versus Wade, the abortion decision, which ruled that even though the baby in the womb is human, it is not a person under the 14th Amendment. That makes it so, right? Supreme Court said so. They've told us something about marriage here recently, too. That makes it so, right? Is that the ultimate authority? Thus, we have a, this new category of, of individual, the human non-person. So, slide number four. Uh, so... Okay, abortion rests on personhood theory. So you have this dichotomy again. Person, again, has moral and legal standing, but the body is an expendable um, biological organism. It's a wrench that can be used as a hammer, perhaps. Uh, It's up to us to decide how to use the body, basically. The body is just a mechanism. And so, let's remember, again, Schaefer's image here. Most people, again, use the term human being to refer to both. Uh, Schaefer's image of the two-story building, in the early stages, the fetus is in the lower story. It's just a, a collection of biological material. You had a pile of wood or a pile of metal, now you got a pile of cells. And they're being formed into something. And here, uh, here it's acknowledged to be a human from conception in the sense that it is a biological organism knowable by empirical methods of science. But it's not thought to have any moral standing yet, nor does it warrant any legal protection. Later, at some undefined point in time, it acquires an upper story and becomes a person. Maybe we could think of that image of build, I built a two-story house, and we had to build the first story first, and at some point we began to add the second story to complete the house. And so it acquires an upper story, and it becomes a person typically defined in terms of a certain level of cognitive functioning or thinking, self-awareness, consciousness, and so forth, Only then does it attain moral and legal standing. This is called personhood theory. Personhood theory. And it's an outworking of that fact-value split that we looked at. To be biologically human, human is a scientific fact. But to be a person is an ethical concept defined by what we value. If you favor or allow for abortion, you're you're implicitly saying that in the early stages of life, an unborn baby has so little value that it can be killed and thrown in the garbage. Or for no reason. Or without any moral consequences. And you shouldn't feel the least bit guilty about it either. This is a very low view of life. And by the way, if that's true, if, if, it, it can, if you can acquire personhood 
that means you can also lose personhood. So it doesn't just stop with the preborn. It's going to show up again on the other end when we start talking about euthanasia or some other kind of physical injury. And so you must say that at some time later the baby becomes a person, at which point it acquires such a high value that killing, that, uh, killing it would be a crime. By the way, this is getting pushed back further and further, you know. So we got infanticide too, so that if there's something wrong with the baby, that perhaps, particularly if it's of a mental nature, then therefore that baby couldn't acquire the appropriate cognitive ability even after it's born. So we may need to terminate it and dispose of it, this body, this piece of material, because it's useless. It hasn't acquired value yet, and it, may, and it may not ever acquire value. Therefore, it would be okay at any age to dispense with it. The implication is that as long as the preborn child is deemed to be human but not a person, it is just a disposable piece of matter, a natural resource like timber or corn. It can be used for research and experiments, tinkered with genetically, harvested for organs, and then disposed of with the other medical waste. At this point, we should note that both the arbitrariness and inconsistency in this worldview. Of course, there is a connection to demand for a right to an abortion and the sexual revolution and feminism, right? Is there a bias here? Is there a motive to want to be able to do this and to justify it? I want to do it. This, this is generally true of sinners, right? I want to do what I want to do, and I don't want any consequences. I don't want to feel bad about it. In fact, I want your approval. You should make me feel good about it. Legally, we need a law that says that it's okay. That makes me feel good. And I need you to shut up to start with and stop telling me it's wrong because now you're making me feel bad. And now we're going to go beyond that. You've got, not not, you got to not only shut up, you actually have to get behind this and support it or there's something wrong with you. We'll call evil good and good evil. We'll flip this upside down. Why? Because I have a bias. I have a motive. I don't want a baby. Well, how did you get, you know, let, we know that there are many circumstances where this happens, and we're not going to, right now, we're not going to parse all of them, be happy to do that as we go along in this study. But oftentimes, what got somebody in that condition in the first place was disobeying God in other areas of their lives through promiscuity. And that's inconvenient. And you're going to mess up my career. And I'm not going to be able to live the lifestyle I want to live. And I need to get rid of this thing, this thing that's an object, and only an object that's in my way right now. They want freedom without the negative consequences. And there's this strong desire and demand for autonomy or self-law. I'll determine for myself. And so justifying abortion enables the pursuit of other goals or pleasures without having to face the consequences. Therefore, some kind of theory must explain why abortion is morally justified. In a world that evolved from matter in motion, molecules banging into each other over zillions of eons of time, eventually, here you are. You're nothing but a biological accident. 
And so the concept of personhood is just arbitrary. It's, and it's totally inconsistent with reality. It's even inconsistent with their worldview, which says we're just matter in motion. If we're just matter in motion, how do you get ethics from anything? How do you get personhood from that? Where did that come from? That's not biological, is it? It's not matter in motion. Moreover, personhood theory thus presumes a very low view of the human body, which ultimately dehumanizes all of us. If our bodies have no inherent value, then a key part of our identity is devalued. The fruit of this body-person dichotomy, with its devaluing of the body, is the presupposition underneath the secular views on abortion and euthanasia and the current views of sexuality, homosexuality, transgenderism, and a host of other related ethical issues. So where did this two-story dualism come from and how did it develop? Let's first define the word dualism. On the one hand, it's simply a claim that reality consists of two kinds of substances instead of only one. And in the traditional sense, Christianity is dualistic because it holds that there exists both the body and the soul, matter and spirit. These two casually interact with one another, but neither one can be reduced to the other. Physical death, in the Christian view, temporarily separates these two, and we call that unnatural. The reality of the spiritual realm is important to defend today because the academic world is dominated by the philosophy of materialism, which is the claim that nothing exists beyond the material world. Yet Christianity holds that the body and the soul together form an integrated unity, that the human being is an embodied soul. By contrast, personhood theory, remember we're comparing worldviews, so that's the Christian worldview. Yes, we're a body and a spirit, but they're joined together in a unified whole to make a person. They come together. By contrast, personhood theory entitles a, or entails a two-level dualism that sets the body as separate from the person as though they were two separate things merely stuck together. As a result, it demeans the body as extrinsic to the person, something inferior that can be used for purely pragmatic reasons. I gave the example last week about if you have a car, that's your car. You can do what you want to with your car. You can park it, drive it forward, backward, fast, slow. You can wreck it. You can do what you want to with it. It's your car. It's just a car. When it gets old, throw it away, and if you can get a new one, then that's fine too. It's just a mechanism. It's a means to an end. So it's critical for us to understand these two differing concepts of the body and the way people have thought about nature. For centuries, Western culture was permeated by a Christian view that, regarded, that regards nature as God's handiwork that reflects his purpose. So as we look around us and see all the created order, the Christian view is that is God's work, and it's a reflection of the Creator, the one who made it. it tells us something about Him. God's, it was said that God's revelation comes to us in two books. The book of God's Word, the Bible, uh, special revelation, and the book of God's world, creation, 
or general revelation or natural revelation. Nature, then, is an expression of God's purposes and a revelation of his character. We know something about ourselves, about the world, and about God by just looking at it. Just like when we looked at this wrench, we said, oh, that's a wrench. How do you know? Well, it looks like a wrench, right? It's that simple. Which reminds me of the Mark Twain joke or story. He's actually theologically wrong here, but supposedly Adam was naming the animals. And an animal came along and he couldn't think of what to name it. So Eve said, call it a horse. And he said, why? And she said, because it looks like a horse. That was the joke. So, um, the psalmist writes, The heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. If you don't believe that, then walk away. Remember, we're making a choice here. You say, I don't, I don't think that's true. I don't think creation says anything about God. I don't think creation says anything. I don't think creation can say anything. It's just creation. It's just molecules in motion. They happen to be organized in this particular way, give it a little time, and those will fall apart and decay and be scattered back into the universe from whence we came, which has no meaning. We have no meaning in terms of where we came from, therefore we have no meaning or purpose in where we're going. It just is. In Romans, the Apostle Paul says that creation gives evidence for God. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made. In other words, even though the world is fallen and broken by sin, it still speaks of its creator. We can read signs of God's existence and purposes in creation. This is called the teleological view of nature, and that word is from the Greek word telos, which just simply means purpose or goal. We can look at things usually and tell what they're for. If we're studying an insect, we know what its legs are for, and its eyes, its antennae, its body, various parts. As we dissect something, we can see that this part of the body is for this function, and these are for the other. It's evident uh, that living things are structured for a purpose. Again, like the wrench, eyes are for seeing, ears for hearing, fins are for swimming, wings are for flying. Each part of an organ is exquisitely adapted uh, to the others, other part of the design, and all interact in a coordinated, goal-directed fashion to achieve the purpose of the whole. This kind of integrated structure is the hallmark of design. We're seeing an M.C. Escher drawing. You go, what is that all about? And he's, he's messing with our mind. And when you look at a staircase, it just goes odd directions. Okay? But if an architect did that, you would say, what was wrong with that? What were they drinking? What was wrong? They're, they're not, this is not functional. You can't do anything with this. So when an architect looks at, at building something, it, it always has to have form and function. Those have to go together. Um, so, for example... The reality is hard to escape as even secular scientists acknowledge that the cell's nucleus, as we get down to the cell level and its command and control center, the DNA molecule stores an immense amount of biology. No, information. 
this thing, this biological thing, lower story, is full of information, upper story. Try to separate those and see what happens. The geneticists talk about DNA as a database that stores, quote, libraries of genetic information. They analyze the way RNA translates the four-letter language of the nucleotides into the 20-letter language of proteins. The search for the origin of life has been described as the search for the origin of biological information. Now, if we discovered an ancient alphabet, let's just say it was our alphabet, and we had not seen it before, and we had A, B, C, D, all the letters of the alphabet, we said, hey, we found an alphabet. What's the next question? What does it mean? What what does the letter A mean? Is it inherent in in that shape? Don't we have to attribute meaning to it as those who would make use of it? So was it a a creation of human beings? And then did the human beings give it meaning so that we now can have a standard by which to know what each of those letters, what sound does, it, what sound does the letter A make? Oh, really? I didn't, I didn't think that made any sound. But we attribute meaning to that shape, including sound, and if we put those together, we start getting words, and from words we get sentences, and sentences we get paragraphs, and paragraphs we get books, and all of that is about meaning, and it all starts with some kind of a symbol. But a symbol by itself, just like a DNA molecule, has no meaning unless somebody has given it meaning. And information implies the existence of a mind, an agent capable of intention, will, plan, and purpose. The latest scientific evidence suggests that the New Testament is right when it says, in the beginning was the Word. In the original Greek, the term translated as word is logos, which also means reason, intelligence, or information. If nature is teleological, that is, it has a purpose, and the human body is part of nature, then it also is teleological. It has a purpose. It has a built-in purpose, part of which is expressed in the moral law. We are morally obligated to treat people in a way that helps them fulfill their purpose. And this explains why biblical morality is not arbitrary. Morality is the guidebook to fulfilling God's original purpose for humanity. The instruction manual is becoming the kind of person that God intends for us to be. It's the roadmap for reaching human telos, or purpose. This is sometimes called natural law ethics because it tells us how to fulfill our true nature how to become fully human. The implication is that the physical structure of our bodies reveals clues to our personal identity. Who am I? Look in the mirror. What am I? Look in the mirror. The way our bodies function provides rational grounds for our moral decisions. That's why, as we will see, A Christian ethic always takes into account the facts of biology, whether addressing abortion, the scientific facts about when life begins, or sexuality, the facts about sexual differentiation and reproduction. A Christian ethic respects the teleology 
of the nature of the body. And we're going to stop here. I'm out of time, and, and uh, Pastor Alexander is going to come and lead us uh, in one of the hymns we need to practice for this morning. So let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word, for revealing to us what we would never know by ourselves, for telling us about your purpose and your glory and that we're created in your image, male and female, and that we are to reflect your glory in how we live and what we do. Help us to think more clearly, more deeply, and joyfully about these truths. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.